Aliens and flying saucers. Hey, welcome to the 46th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever I'm thinking of. And today, well, I'm not going to lie. If you're a huge Donald Trump sucker, I mean supporter, this episode probably won't make you so happy. My guest is John Pavlovitz, the North Carolina-based pastor who has gained more than 100,000 Twitter followers and a huge voice in the political religious world with his blog, Stuff That Needs To Be Said. First, John is a brilliant writer. But second, he's become an important one with his regular takes on Trump, on the religious right, on social decency, on hypocrisy. It's so good. We're going to talk all about it right now on Two Writers Slinging In. Okay, so John, first of all, uh, thank you very much for doing this. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I wanted to start with something that has actually very little to do with writing, but I've been waiting to ask someone like you, you being a pastor, you being a, a man of religion and, and uh, a Christian, why would anyone follow the lead of people who say, look, here's the way, Jesus is the way when they're so easily swayed by a street corner huckster. Yeah, that's, well, hey, I think you're not alone, and there are a good number of, of faithful people who are having the same sort of sense of disbelief and feeling um, just estranged from the faith that they grew up in. And I think for, for me, what you've seen is a lot, the perfect storm of a, a fear-based religion that people have been existing in for a long time, sometimes for generations. And I think what Trump did was he exploited that fear and that sense of that, that white supremacy that's sort of underneath the surface in a lot of, especially Bible Belt evangelicalism. And it's, it's, it's astonishing to me as a pastor and as a, a person who's trying to hold on to being a Christian. You know, I tell people as I travel the country, I'm a Christian, but I have more and more trepidation saying that because I know what it associates me with, right? And I, and I think what you're seeing is a group of people who are so committed to holding on to power that they are willing to let go of a lot of things that just 18 months ago or two years ago, they would have said, this is, these are hills worth dying on for me as a believer. And that's where you, you really, the sadness comes in for me. It's, it's, and you, you don't recognize the faith that you grew up with. I actually feel like there's something biblical here where it sounds corny. I know this sounds corny, but it's almost like the devil disguised as an angel where mm. people are flocking to this absolutely sinister, vile entity and they don't even see it. Is that overly, is yeah, that, does that just sound stupid? Well, no, it, it doesn't. I mean, you know, I always tell people in the Old Testament, you had all these supposedly faithful people bowing down to a golden calf and now they're bowing down to an orange jackass. And I think you, you, you kind of see this like repetition of people who are, are, are dying to have something to hold on to. They, and they want to have a leader so badly that they will accept just completely horrible things. Um, and, and it's, you know, sometimes I say it, it's biblical, but then, you know, the Trump supporters are saying that Trump is this, you know, 
this biblical leader who is flawed and yet God is using him. So I try to hold those things very loosely and just say, this is a really, it's a bastardization of the message of Jesus. And that's pretty much, you know, where I kind of sit with it right now. You're, you, so you fascinate me for many reasons. Number one, um, I would have never heard of you if not for social media. Like you actually speak, you're following, you have more than a hundred thousand Twitter followers. Your, your, your website gets, you know, hundreds of comments, sometimes thousands of comments on your posts. And you are in a way, uh, a marvel of modern media. Mm. And then nobody would, nobody, you know, you're a pastor from North Carolina. You're literally a pastor from North Carolina. You're uh, a right. youth minister at the North Raleigh Community Church. Nobody would have known nationally who you are. And you have this national voice um, that is strong and profound. And I wonder, how did this, how did this literally happen? Not in your life. I'm not talking about your life through Christianity. I, I'm fascinated by the media sort of explosion of your quote unquote, I know you wouldn't call it this, but your quote unquote brand and your name. Yeah. You know, Jeff, I talked to people about, um, you know, I was writing the blog over the course of about five or six years. And, but about four years ago, I, you know, was fired from my church for, you know, being outspoken in matters of diversity and equality, especially on issues of sexuality. And not long after that, I was sort of free to, to write and I wasn't beholden to a local faith community. And shortly after I was fired, I wrote a blog post called If I Have Gay Children and it sort of exploded. And for me, I was fortunate enough that I had been writing on a diverse group of issues and those some so some of those blog posts whether they were on grief or they might have been on the church or they might have been on sexuality they happened to start reaching outside of my you know audience and so i started to get a diverse group of people coming in but but i was able to sort of sustain the momentum of those blog those viral blog posts and um somehow managed to just uh keep acquiring um, readers. And it's been astonishing to me because it was, it was a, really an insider blog. I was writing for people in my church and first pastors. And, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a prettiest. And I tell people I was unemployed when the blog went viral. And so it, it's a really a testament to the power of words to reach the people that they're going to reach because I had no kind of mega power behind me. I had no infrastructure behind me, no finances. It was just the words and it read that and it, and those words resonated with certain people. And it's just, I kept going. And so I have that post in front of me. It's called, if I have gay children, uh, four promises from a Christian pastor and a parent. It was on June 25th, 2015. I'm just going to read your lead real quick. Maybe it's because I have, I have many gay people in my family and circle of friends. It's in my genes and in my tribe. Maybe it's because as a pastor of students, I've seen and heard the horror stories of gay Christian kids from both inside and outside the closet trying to be part of the church. Maybe it's because as a Christian, I interact with so many people who find homosexuality to be the most repulsive thing imaginable and who make that abundantly clear at every conceivable opportunity. For whatever reason, it's something that I ponder frequently. As a pastor and a parent, I wanted to make some promises to you and to my two kids right now. And your first promise is, if I have gay children, you all know it. Then if I have gay children, I'll pray for them. Um, if I have gay children, I'll love them. And if I have gay children, I have gay children. And the point of your blog was obviously is, whether my kids are gay or straight. I mean, in a way, your point is, I don't care. Like, I'm going to love my kids, whether they're gay or straight. And not only that, because I feel like until recently, a lot of people were saying, it was almost like, look, if I have gay kids, I'll find a way to deal with it. Or if I have gay yeah, kids. Yeah. With, 
and and you're basically saying, I don't give a shit if they're gay. That's the whole point. I don't care if they're gay. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote, you know, obviously at the time too, I ended up, I, I republished that post, you know, with the LGBT language and because I knew that it was sort of more narrow as I, as I first wrote it. But for me, it was, yeah, the expression of, Hey, I'm going to, th- this is not going to change the reality of my love for my children one in one way at all. And, and, and what was astounding to me was the amount of media coverage it got. And my wife, I remember, you know, I was on CNN the next day and she walked in and she said, you know, pastor says he would love his kids news at 11. And it was just <laughs> the idea that this was somehow a novel, you know, expression. And, and that's what I found with the growth of the blog that the, a lot of the viral pieces you know, I, I wrote a letter to a Brock Turner's father and, and oh, yeah. again, and again, she was saying, my wife said, you know, pastor says you shouldn't assault women. And, and the fact that these things appear a revelatory or novel coming from a pastor, that's the story. The story is why are so few pastors explicitly saying the most elemental truths? Uh, and so that for me has been, um, you know, uh, kind of a, a mystifying thing, but it also shows you the lack of moral leadership from ministers. Well, let me ask you your own question. You just asked, why aren't more pastors saying these things? Yeah. Yeah. For, for, for me, I had found being, you know, I was in a, in a mega church in, in um, the Charlotte area. And when I started writing the blog and I found that, you know, when you're a minister, you start off with this intention to have this, you have this, this moral lead or this call or whatever you want to call it. And you want to do you don't care for people. And when you start a local church, you end up being beholden to that local community, to those people. You have a responsibility. It becomes, it's an occupation as much as it is a calling. And inherent in that is the, um, the danger that you will compromise your beliefs in order to keep the peace where you are. And so I knew that there were certain things I was starting to feel that I needed to say. And I, I knew I could stretch my community to a certain degree, but I said, if I go here, that's going to be a liability for me. And that's a reality that all pastors face. And it's, um, you know, it's a very seductive thing. And so I think there's a lot of that happening, even with DC, with what's happening with Trump. A lot of pastors completely abhor what he's doing and who he is. But they also know if I say that, it's going to put so much volatility in my local community that I don't want to deal with that. And that's, um, that's kind of where we, why we find ourselves where we are, especially in the church. You know, what's really interesting is people, the inability of humanity to see the long view on issues. Like I watched, um, I watched Jerry Falwell Jr. defend Trump over and over and over again. And I feel like, do you not understand the damage you're doing to your brand long-term to Liberty University long-term? There's the inability to see the long-term damage here is staggering. Yeah. You place, you know, you, I talk about that image often of, of Trump, you know, laying out everything before these evangelicals and, and saying, I can give this to you and, and, and them saying yes, because it was Supreme Court seat and immediate power. Um, and they, and they sacrificed so much. They don't see, they still don't, and they probably will never admit to it. The damage that they're doing to not only to the church, to people in the church, but to people who are looking on who may have spiritual leanings and saying, well, I certainly, I thought I may have wanted to be a part of this thing, but now there's no way I could ever. And so they're, they're really uh, doing a lot of damage to people who are just trying to figure out what God is to them. And I think that's the saddest part because they'll never understand that. They'll never admit it if they do. Right. I agree. Um, well, I, I, 
when I read your uh, your post about um, if if your kids are gay, I really found the comments fascinating. And there was a comment by someone, you know, Karen, and she wrote, "God does not make people same sex attraction any more than He makes people already addicted to pornography or cocaine. It doesn't make us liars or cheaters." And you actually responded directly, and you said, "You're equating LGBT human beings." with liars and cheaters and drug abusers shows the contents of your heart, Karen, not theirs. And I, I'm, I am fascinated by this. How much do you decide to engage? And is there a certain tone you need to sort of keep when you're engaging with readers? Is there, is, is there, will you, are you only willing to go so far? Are you willing to go back and forth for an hour and a half? How, how do you sort of decide mm. that? Yeah, you know, originally, Jeff, I, when I, when I, when the blog was just starting to grow, I felt like I had to respond to everyone. And then I soon realized just from a, a volume uh, of post uh, uh, stance, I couldn't, I couldn't do that any longer. So I would tend to, uh, fly, you know, fly into a comment section and say, here's a message from John. And I would speak very generally about what I was seeing and the patterns of conversation. But um, all, very rarely now do I ever um, interact with people on the blog, um, mostly because there's a, just a limit on what I can do time-wise. But also, if you respond to them and they respond to you, sooner or later, you have to cut that conversation off. So I've tried to say, okay, what am I going to set? I'm setting the table with this blog post, and I'm going to let a group of people you know, just have the conversation that they're going to have. The only thing that I do is I do look at the comments and try to root out anything that's really openly horrible, uh, uh, you know, attack on another person individually. Um, but as you know, you could, you could spend your whole life moderating those comment sections. And at some point it just, it's, it dilutes what you're trying to do. Do you not find yourself ever sort of sucked down the rabbit's hole of, um, reading your comments or spot? Like I used to really struggle with that. Um, the common engagement and back and forth and back and forth. And, wanting to see what people are writing about what I wrote. Um, do you not find that in an odd way alluring? Yeah. You know, I, I no longer, uh, what I started to try to do really early on when, when I, when the blog post went viral and I'm on CNN and underneath my name, it had pastor and, and, and it looked very impressive, but I was unemployed at the time. So I saw the absurdity <laughs> of that, you know, and so of the, of the praise and the criticism. And so I try not to hold either too tightly. So I know I could I could write a blog post that says, hey, kids are a wonderful thing. And I could have had people saying, I, here's why you're wrong and and hate me for writing it. And so I realized you're going to place those words out there and they're going to do all sorts of different things. And so I try not to really get too wrapped up with my critics or my cheerleaders and just say, what? why am I writing? Why am I placing this thought out there? And then I leave it to them to decide whether it's offensive or encouraging or or anything like that. Right. Um, the Brock Turner uh, post, which you referenced, I have in front of me and it's a, I mean, I think it's one of your absolute best. You, you, the headline was to Brock Turner's father from another father, uh, June 6, 2016. I just read the beginning. You wrote, uh, dear, this is to Brock Turner's father, obviously, dear Mr. Turner, I've read your letter to the judges on behalf of your son, Brock, asking for leniency in his rape conviction. And you need to understand something. And I say this as a father who dearly loves my son as much as you must love yours. Brock is not the victim here. His victim is the victim. She is the wounded one. He is the damager. Um, the thing is, I mean, it's really powerful writing. And um, I want to ask you two things about it. Number one, when you're writing this blog post, are you in your head literally writing it to his dad? Um, and number two, I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated 
where do you write it? How long does it take you to write these posts? Um, how much research do you put in them? How much are you Googling information? On and on. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I'm doing most of the time is I've got four or five kind of thoughts, uh, different blog posts that are sort of floating around all the time, and I'm sort of writing them in my head, and I, I kind of wait till there's a moment where I feel like, okay, I'm ready to write this, and it, then it really does just come out in a, in a half hour to an hour. Uh, I do just a lot of that processing as I walk, and I, I spend a lot of time outside, and and but there are times when a post will just... um will be prompted by what's happening in the world that um, I've got these four or five things I'm thinking through that I might write about. And then life will just sort of interrupt. And in that case, that was really, I was seeing the story on, on Brock Turner's father, seeing what he said. And then the father in me sort of just like kind of, there was a guttural instinct that I had that I need to say this. And so it's almost a stream of consciousness at times and, um, and so that particular post and some others, you know, I tell people sometimes you're writing and other times you're bleeding. You know, there are times when you're saying, I'm trying to craft these words. And other times you're just saying, I just, this is a, a total feeling that I'm placing out there. And that was a sense of, I was, I was bleeding as I was writing and just saying, I'm just going to get this out to him. Um, so a really emotional kind of ex uh, release in that piece. Can you can you uh, simultaneously be uh, disgusted by Brock Turner's father, and also have sort of empathy and pain for him? Uh, I hope so. I mean, because that's what in all of the stuff that you know I'm talking about, these are really you know these are the deepest of issues. Whether it's your idea of what God looks like or your idea of your the value of a, of a human being, there are so there's a heaviness to some of that stuff. If this is the most, in, you know, intense things you could ever speak on. So as I look at someone like Brock Turner, I understand that, that, that self-preservation, that protective instinct of a father. So I can't lose that as I'm writing to this father. In fact, that's the appeal in that piece is to the humanity that he feels for his son, can he have that same compassion for his son's victim? And that's what you're always trying to do as a writer, I think, is to show someone um, an experience of the world that they're not seeing at the time. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, a high school freshman who's composed a special song in honor of 503 Sports. Okay, Casey, ready? Yep. Let's hear it. Wait, 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 stop. Isn't that My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion? No. Y yeah, it is. Dad, why would I lie? That song was written for Titanic. This song is written for Favorite Three Sports, Kings of Throwback Merchandise. I don't, I don't, I don't get it at all. It's like Ice Ice Baby vs. Under Pressure. There's subtlety in the music only a true artist could understand. I think you're full of shit. Ugh, commoner. You know what? I hate the recorder. But I love 503 Sports. Why? Because it's all about throwback, and it has it all. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, old school Portland State, or, put differently, if you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Doug Williams Oklahoma Outlaws jersey, well, dreams come true. The merch at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like little Casey Perlman and go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. You're a, uh, you're a fantastic writer. Uh, and I'm not just Thank saying you. that. Like a, 
an absolutely fantastic writer. Like, again, I can't say this enough. I love what I love about modern media is that you're someone I never would. I, I never would heard of you. We would not be having this discussion. <laughs> right. Not for the moment. We just wouldn't have it. You know, you'd be writing this and, you know, you'd be typing it on your typewriter and showing it to your wife just to blow off steam. And, and you're able to, the you know, for all the negatives of social media and, and their myriad, uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um. How did you learn to write? Like, when did you start writing? Where did you sort of get your, were you always a kid who, who loved to sit down and, you know, dabble away? You know, I really didn't. I, um, I started writing music in high school and in college. And so I started crafting ideas, uh, through, through song, but then really I was a, an illustrator and a graphic designer. Um, that was my training. That was, I started as a graphic designer and an art director in my career. And as I became a pastor, I was putting thoughts down to speak on Sundays or to speak to a group of students, but never had the ambition to let those words kind of speak for themselves in the written form. And it was really just, uh, you know, the blog happened and I, you know, it's a, it's a craft thing. It's a discipline. I write every day, whether or not I publish the piece, I get up and wake up as if I'm a columnist that says, okay, today there's a task to, to share something that's worth reading. And so for me, it's, it's been a process of about 20 years of just, you know, having, trying to put thoughts into some form. Um, but I, I look back at school. I was not an exceptional writer by any means. There wasn't really didn't do, you know, I did fine in school, but nothing that I would have said, Hey, I'm going to be a writer. I, I can remember my father-in-law. He actually read one of my pieces a couple of years ago and said, wow, he's actually a good writer as if this is just a revelation to him. Um, but I had been speaking at that point for about 15 to 20 years. So it was trying to find a way to do, to do, it's a, it's a little bit different, but you're trying to make those words stand apart from your voice. Um, so that was just the little transition I had to make then. So do you, do you wake up in the morning and go on social media and search for ideas? How are you actually coming up with what you want to write about? Yeah, well, most of it is just looking at the world. And, you know, I've been doing traveling uh, on almost every weekend with, with the book kind of tour. And, and what I do is I'll sit with someone and have a conversation. And I almost always leave that conversation saying, what are they feeling that they're not able to express that I can express on their behalf? And I do that when I read the news. I'm always trying to see who are the voices that maybe are not being heard or what is the sort of sense, what are the patterns I'm seeing in how people are feeling? And, and then I'll just place those out there. So sometimes it's the news. Sometimes it's conversations I'm having with friends, but that process really doesn't stop. And if you're, you know, many writers understand that, that there's sort of a, an activity going on in your mind. That's, that's really, it can be disturbing at times because you're never really able to turn it off. Um, but some of the best pieces have been me sitting in the middle of something. Uh, you know, I had a conversation last week. We we're in a restaurant and a guy is in there and he starts, um, you know, showing, talking about his guns and he's talking about his guns really loudly and everyone there laughing and making jokes. And all of a sudden this experience happens and, you know, I'm able to then go home and say, okay, I can actually put this in a way in a form that other people can step into that story. And that's my job. Um, so. Do you ever feel like you're preaching to the choir? Is that a little bit of a, uh, the snag of it all is that you gain readers, but they're going to be readers who agree with you. Like how, how easy is it to reach people who, and how much of a goal is it of yours to reach people who don't share your opinions and to sort of mm -hmm. make them rethink what they're thinking? Yeah. I, I tell people that I, I try to write the same, 
the same blog post in 20 different ways because I know that there's such a disparate group of people who are reading that I'm not going to reach them with, with a certain method. So I might be writing to someone who's across the political aisle from me and I'm writing about an issue and I might be writing to a Christian, let's say, and I know, okay, this Christian might, I might, um, reach them through theology, through Bible verses and really wrestling with that. Uh, another Christian uh, on this issue, I might reach through telling them the story of a marginalized person and tapping into the empathy that they have for them. I might be look, reaching this person by confronting them with the reality of their theology and the effect that maybe legislation is having on someone. So it might be the same, the very same issue, but I'm trying to figure out how to reach a, a really wide group of people. So sometimes you're going to really piss people off and sometimes you're going to tap into some emotion and you're going to reach them that way. Um, for me, my, my, my journey as a progressive pastor was based on meeting people whose experiences of the church or America or Christianity was different than mine. And so I'm always trying to, you know, there's a white evangelical thing. I'm trying to get them stories that they're never going to hear or have them think in a way they may not be thinking. And that's sometimes going to cause them to be angry. So yeah, you're sometimes preaching to your choir but sometimes you are confronting your choir too. Interesting. Can you get, is there, is there a way to get people like, I'm sure you want, I have to think you want Trump supporters to read your blogs, your blog posts, and you want them to hear your take. Is there a, is there a way to go about, uh, gaining listeners who wouldn't, or gaining readers who wouldn't ordinarily be reading your, your stuff? Yeah, I think you trust in the organic uh, process of, that social media allows of people saying, "Hey, here's here's something that I that I really resonate. This resonates with me and, and might with you, and you might get a couple people who would have never read it otherwise, and they will engage with you." Um, you know, in the book, the first book that I wrote, I, it was it's called A Bigger Table, and the idea mm-hmm. is you know how to create sort of these really diverse spiritual communities. But I started writing it well before the campaign season. And by the time the, the book was going to be published, it was, it was really right around the election and right just after. And the publisher said, Hey, you're speaking to these things very, um, very clearly, but you're not naming them because they weren't nameable then. Uh, and so right. they had me go back in and speak more explicitly to the election. And I put an intro in that referenced sort of the, the grief that I was feeling the day after the election. Well, I tried that, you know, for me, that was written from a really personal, really, um, you know, um, gentle place. And yet there were people who opened the first page and said, uh, I see where he's going and I'm not going to read it. So you run the risk of that in anything that you do that has a strong opinion. Um, I'd love Trump supporters to read the writing and be changed, but I know that the fact that they're Trump supporters still, as opposed to Trump voters means that they're pretty entrenched in where they are and uh, it's going to be difficult to move them. Um, so a lot of times I'm writing to the people who are in the middle who are saying, yeah, I'm feeling these nudges. I'm feeling these, having these, um, these tensions and, you know, so that I'm kind of trying to reach them. Right. You're, uh, you open your book, uh, a bigger table with some days you don't welcome the sun. Some days you dread it from, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great opening from a distance. It could have been, it could have been just another Wednesday morning in November, but it wasn't. This one was planet rocking. It was foundation shifting. It was faith shaking. On this particular Wednesday morning in November 2016, so much about my country seemed different. And this morning, I couldn't help but wake up and feel as though the table had become decidedly smaller 
and that religion had helped make it so. That's freaking really good. Um, Thank you. Why'd you go with that? Well, you know, probably because I, I wanted people to understand who may be on the other side, theologically or politically, that this is a really a human thing. This is sort of the, one of those bedrock moments. And this is, um, this is not about seeing adversaries. It's about seeing the humanity of other people. That's what the book has been about. And so I wanted to start off and say, this is still what it's about for me. You know, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as I was when I wrote the book, you know, as I'm getting ready to publish it. But I believe the bigger table is more important than ever. I just realized there's more barriers to it. And so I wanted to name that, that, that there, there is a, a sense of loss, a sense of grief, and it has nothing to do with a political opponent, nothing to really do with this president. It has to do with the things that you feel like have died because of this victory. And that maybe if people can, can on the other side can see that, that there is that sense there that then they can meet us at that place. Yeah. You do something really interesting as a writer, I got to say, which is, um, and I'm not good at this. When I write about Trump, I feel like all my posts come out as, Hey, asshole, open your eyes. What the hell is wrong with you? You're freaking mm -hmm. acting like an idiot. And this is insane. And you should be embarrassed and you're pathetic and get a life. And how do you not see yeah. this? You don't <laughs> do that. You actually are very, very good about walking the line of explaining without decimating. Do you ever just feel like being like, Hey, asshole, what the hell is wrong with you? Or are you, are you not that guy? Well, no, I mean, a lot of them, a lot of people tell me that I am that guy. So I'm, I appreciate you saying that because it encourages me. Um, I think it's in the eyes of the person who, who reads those words. Um, but for me, there are days when, you know, someone said to me, the, the only damage, the only bad thing you can do as a writer is to assign motive to people. And so I try not to assume that anyone who's voted a certain way or is politically aligned in a certain way or theologically that they, ha that they realize in that moment that they're acting with malice, that I, I try not to assume that they realize that they're being hateful because they probably don't. It's very rare that a person will say, I'm doing damage right now, uh, or this belief is hurting someone. Almost everyone thinks they're getting it right. So I try to keep that in my head as I'm writing. Um, I talk in the book about a, a sign guy, you know, Southern Baptist guy carrying a sign and realizing as he's, as I'm talking to a, a gay Christian that he it has the same motivation that she and I have. We're, we're, you know, he's trying to hear what he believes is the voice of God and respond faithfully. He's thinking that that's a redemptive act somehow. Um, so as I write, as mad as I get, I try to hold on to the humanity of the person who's across from me. And that's a challenge. <laughs> I mean, believe yeah. me, especially in, in writing a blog. You may get it wrong one day and then you say, okay, well, I'm going to try to, I'm trying to say this in a better way. And that there's the beauty of it that you have this sort of evolving relationship with readers. And if you, and if you did dehumanize someone, you can try to find a way to say what you said in a different way. That's perhaps a little more constructive. Actually, that's interesting. Have you written blog posts that you regretted after writing them? I mean, I, I could look back on, you know, a lot of posts and say, Hey, that was really. I think sometimes it's more of a, the mechanics of the writing. You think you said something maybe poorly. I, I, I've had maybe one or two posts, but I haven't, I've never deleted a blog post because I think it's important to have that record of, of the fact that you, you know, I'm okay arguing with my former self, 
because I think it shows an evolution and I think it's okay. You know, people will hold those things up to you and say, oh, you said this. And I said, yeah, well, two years ago, that was really the most authentic version I had of myself. And this is the most authentic version I have today. And I'm hoping that I see a difference. Uh, so I don't see those things often as inconsistency as much as places of growth. So that regret comes with uh, an admission that this is just life. Yeah, actually, it's very interesting. I, I think of all the damages over the past year and whatever months, one of the sm- I guess it's one of the smaller ones, but one that always bothers me is this idea that admitting you were wrong or that you, you've sort of uh, evolved in your thinking is a sign of weakness. I've always thought mm-hmm. of it as the exact opposite. I think there's nothing wrong with looking at something you wrote a year ago and saying, you know what, I've got- I wasn't, that was not on point. Or that was not right. And here's what I'm thinking now. Actually, think there's, do you think there's kind of a strength in that in a weird way? Oh, there, there absolutely is. I think it's, it's, you know, if we're looking at someone we oppose politically or theologically and we, and they say to us, I got it wrong. Well, that, that would be, that would be cause for celebration with us. We would think, but normally it's like we say, yeah, you better believe you got it wrong. And you didn't even say how much you got it wrong as to our satisfaction. And so there is a piling on that happens in the culture, especially through social media. And so, yeah, I think we want an honest mea culpa. We want someone to say, boy, I really, I really dropped the ball here, but we don't want to give them a lot of grace once they say that. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a tricky one. Are you a big, uh, you're a big Katy Perry fan? I, I am actually. She was, she uh, shared the blog post that I wrote the day after the election which was astounding to me. I, I was looking at my sort of admin stats and then saw this gigantic spike and wondered what would happen. And, and that's what had happened. You know, Katie was a pastor's uh, daughter and she was in the uh, contemporary Christian music world before she kind of entered into the pop realm. And I think she saw in the writing someone speaking a language that she recognized. And, and so she shared it. And it was in, uh, I have a really soft spot in my heart for her. Yeah, 109 million followers of Katy Perry on Twitter. Did did her tweeting you out take you from sort of here to there as far as far as attention, as far as uh, readership? Was that was that the big boost that sort of uh, propelled you to a certain new realm? Uh, Yeah, probably did. What, What I think it did was, you know, I had had about I was fortunate. I had about five or six blog posts that that really went, uh, you know, viral in the sense of reaching five or six million people and those were all very different and so i i got a group of people who said oh well this guy writes about grief or this guy writes about sexuality and when i didn't just write about that i might have lost you know 80 percent of them but i kept 20 and so but with with katie with sharing that post it was so um her following was so massive but it was also that pivotal moment for our uh, nation and so many people were sort of looking at the same time at, at their social media feeds that it just, I reached a group of people who, whose hearts were very aligned with mine on a lot of issues. And so I think what it did was it kept a lot of people, um, a lot of those people stayed. Um, and so that was the difference. It was this huge influx, but it was people who really said, Oh, I get what this guy is about. And, and that's been really a, a transformative thing for the ministry and for the, the readership. Right, so that blog post was called uh, "Here's Why We Grieve Today," and it was November 9th, two thousand sixteen, and a very you end up getting well over two thousand comments. It's pretty huge. Um, yeah, I'm kind of fascinated. You watch the election, you see the result. I imagine going into that day, you 
probably presumed, like most of us did, Hillary Clinton was going to win and it wouldn't be that tight. Um, when did you write that and sort of what was involved with writing that? That was a really strange, that was when I started to realize the audience that I had sort of been accruing and the relationships I'd been building with them that, you know, over the course of the night, I started to get texts and emails and messages on Twitter and Facebook saying, hey, this is really looking bad and I'm really struggling. Can you share some encouragement? And then, you know, toward, toward I think, 11 o'clock or midnight, maybe even later, in the early in morning, people saying, Hey, can you speak on this? We really need your, you to say something right now. And you saw a group of people who had a relationship with, with the writing that was so powerful and emotionally um, strong that they were needing that. And so I really didn't sleep that night. I just kept field, fielding these emails and these calls. And again, just processing what is everyone trying to say here? What are they trying to find words for? And I, I wrote that probably or six or seven in the morning and without having slept and um, and then published it. And so, yeah, that was just a really one of those another one of those moments where you're trying to, um, you know, put words to something that people are struggling to find words for. And that's it was a it was a crazy, you know, stretch of hours. I feel like people turn to pastors, rabbis, clergy of all sorts. And what they want to hear at the end of the day is. Everything's going to be okay. I actually think that's a big part of clergy. Everything's going to be okay. Um, is everything going to be okay? It, well, I tell people, you know, the, the line I, I have shared before is it will be okay because we'll make it okay. I think that we, when you have the response that happened after the election, you know, it's, it's a, this is a discouraging time and it's a, it's a devastating, you know, era in our nation's history, but then you see, what is rising up in response to it. And so the level of, of personal activism and the level of engagement is, is huge right now with so many people. And so you balance out that sort of, that sort of sadness and the grief with a sense of hope at what you see happening. In fact, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have a, you know, this huge readership last year. And I tell people that isn't a product of my writing improving so drastically. It's a sign that the same that a, a large group of people are asking the same questions and sharing the same frustrations, and so that's where the hope is for me. the The growth of the blog isn't just oh look at how how well I write or look at how many people like what I write. It's look how many people are really wrestling with how do I be a better human being on the planet. So that's why it's it's always easy for me to share hope in the middle of the sort of angst that I write about. There's a story in the. And the New Testament and Jesus is like railing against the religious leaders. And it's just a whole chapter in, in Matthew's biography of Jesus. And he's just saying this, the really, really appointed stuff. And you could, you could read that and say, wow, that was really rude to these Pharisees. But what motivated Jesus to me was not to offend those people. It's, it's his compassion for the people who are being oppressed. And I try to keep that in, in mind too, is not just, I, I'm not doing this to hurt people. I'm doing this to help people. And I'm doing this to sort of bring something to their minds that they're not seeing. And, and decency is everything. I mean, it really is. It's like what, what I get the most angry at is when people's humanity is being disregarded. And so I can't lose the humanity of the people I'm arguing with to try, you know, to defend that other person's humanity. So I appreciate that. Right. I actually think, I actually think a final thought is that, um, one of the things this president has really 
taken out of us is the humanity and the decency. And I mean, say what you want about George W. Bush or say what you want about his dad or say what you want about Ronald Reagan. Um, there's at least a dignity and a sort of effort to understand people and to relate with people. Uh, same with yeah, Bill Clinton, yeah. say what you want about him. Barack Obama, say what you want about him. There's at least an effort to understand people. And I feel like we've really, really, that's something we're going to have to recover from in a major way when this presidency ends is um, remembering that it's not okay to just mock people and to berate people and to tell people they're stupid and to make fun of people because they're fat or because they're gay or because they look different. Yeah, yeah. And I, doesn't that, it just kills me that we're losing that. And I, it, it kills me. And it does, and it kills me, especially because a lot of these people are professed people of faith, and and so trying to get that that low bar, you know, the lowest bar is going to have to be raised so so much higher now to get back to any level of uh, right. And it's not political correctness, and it's not some sort of fake decorum. It's just actually treat, treating people with simple respect, and that's what I think the greatest damage that Trump has done. He's made that sort of acceptable to treat people horribly. And it's just, um, yeah, you can look back at any other, I never wrote about politics before this year. I mean, I never named a political party and never named a politician. And, and this was very different because this transcends politics. This it goes down to the deepest stuff about who we are. And that's why I think it's okay to name it. And that's, you're right. That's the stuff we're going to have to be digging out of for a long time. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, John, listen, I, uh, I really appreciate you doing this. You are a very unconventional guest for this podcast. And, uh, I love that. And please, please keep bringing the message because I think it's important for a lot of people to hear. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I so appreciate the time and, and love just what you're doing. And I just, uh, anytime you, you want to do this again, you let me know. I want to thank today's guest, John Pavlovitz, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at John Pavlovitz and read his truly fantastic work at www.johnpavlovitz.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, king of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at www.503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on iTunes and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>